0: This episode is brought to you by Dunnings, your local distributor of quality fuels and lubricants throughout Western Australia. Dunnings Fuel operate their fleet of trucks 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Dunnings keeps the whole state running. Find out more at dunningsfuel.com.au Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit Ariat.com.au today.
1: A young Peter Ritter stood in the paddock of his family farm in Moree and watched as a gigantic Hercules aircraft roared overhead. It was locked in war training exercises, oblivious to the kid standing underneath in awe, a kid whose obsession with aircraft had begun. It took a stint in a territory stock camp for Peter's fixation to take shape. By then, he knew he wanted to become a helicopter mustering pilot, but the road to get there wouldn't be straightforward. In this episode, Peter shares his story from coming off second best against a bull to spending several years working away from helicopters, all while never taking his eyes off the sky. He reveals exactly what it took to get behind the controls of a chopper, land his career as a mustering pilot, and all the lessons and adventures that have come with it ever since.
2: I was always fascinated in aviation from a pretty young age. Growing up at home on a cropping property, we always had spray planes and, you know, other light aircraft flying over the top of us. Back in the day when I was younger, that actually used to be a bit of a training ground for the military as well. So I used to fly down in fighter jets and stuff and have little fake wars over the top of our property, which was also pretty interesting. We always used to, um, yeah, get bombed by By fighter jets, and you'd see the big, like Hercules and stuff flying over a bit. That's all changed now, but they, um, I was always intrigued by aviation and it was, yeah, it all started there.
1: So, were you that kid that had toy aeroplanes and, and like the Lego version of them? And,
2: (laughs) yeah, yep. I sort of didn't always get the, uh, the plane toys I wanted. So, I used to have to make a few dodgy looking aircraft out of Lego, but yeah, I was always mucking around with something along those lines. And
1: what was the rest of your childhood like?
2: Well, I grew up on a mixed cropping and cattle operation uh, out of a town called Moree in New South Wales, northern northwestern New South Wales. Um, we also, the family business had a sheep station as well out at a place called Collar Anterbury. So I always grew up around stock and machinery, I guess, and was always interested as a kid to Go and work with dad and mum and go out to my uncle's place and always get put to work in a shearing shed or on a tractor in the, in the cattle yards. I don't know that I was very helpful, but I, I was pretty keen on it as a kid. I was always, you know, by dad's side going out and, you know, as I got a little bit older, started helping a fair bit with the farm and I was our property's bore runner there for a good while. When I was younger, I had a little short wheelbase Toyota Land Cruiser I used to cut around with and start old diesel list of pumps and, We're always mustering cattle or we actually had um, a fella came to our place with a heap of goats one year to uh, try and control this hot bush infestation we had which we were trying to do it naturally. So this bloke bought uh, something along the lines of 3,000 head of goats there and, um, yeah, they ate everything but what they were meant to eat. So uh, eventually after a couple of years we told him to to pack them up and get them off there but obviously he didn't get them all so – We ended up with a bit of a goat problem at home. So I spent a lot of my time as a young fella trying to, trying to muster these goats up and make a bit of money, get a bit of a side hustle going with these goats. So we roped in a few family members, a couple of cousins, and we'd go out there and try and catch them. And yeah, they, uh, we weren't very successful. We weren't obviously the best stockmen or as good as we thought we were. So they eventually gave it up, but I used to go out there a bit by myself afterwards and yeah, tried to keep the ball rolling a bit and I remember going out there by myself with the pre-cut sections of baling twine and jumping off the quad and knocking over billy goats and tying them up and taking them back one at the time to the cattle yards, which at the time I thought I was pretty smart. I'd lined the, the cattle yards with, with mesh so they couldn't get out or escape. Um, and I thought they were pretty goat-proof. And once I got a bit of a mob together, uh, that lead billy goat, the, the leader of the mob, he decided he'd had enough of it and... Yeah, he jumped up on the calf race of our cattle yards. He sort of tiptoed across the top of it onto the, the main race and onto the head bale and jumped out of those yards and he led about 30 goats with him. So ended up with absolutely nothing at the end of all that and successfully shifted the goat problem. Uh, yeah, a few K's across. So the neighbors weren't very happy with me either. So
1: let me get this right. You, after this gentleman kept goats on your family's property and then he was, um, supposed to take them all away some got left behind a group of you got together to try and and muster them up so you could remove them but that wasn't successful as a group activity so you thought if a if a whole group of us can't do this well i can probably just do it on my own
2: (laughs) just go one out with it also
1: when you also this bailing twine so for anybody that has perhaps um seen the the tv show outback ringer or heard of bull catching before i'm just thinking you know there's a lot of people that it's not very common to go and muster one animal at a time, except for perhaps in the instance of bull catching and you see people, um, you know, they'll either ride up on horses or in certain vehicles or bikes and, you know, throw the bull onto the ground, you know, kind of trip them up and pull off this big belt. You know, they're wearing extra belts around their waist and they'll tie them up so they can come back and get them later. So I guess that's effectively what you were doing, (laughs) but with goats and bailing twine.
2: That's a, there's a, That's the difference. So there's a bit of a difference between the old, the old goat and the old bull. Um, obviously one of those differences is you can use baling twine to, uh, tie them up, but I was not very successful with the, the goat episode. So I never really tried my hand too much at bull catching. I thought if I couldn't catch a goat, I couldn't catch a bull.
1: I think we should get something going. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, bull catching is quite a, a something a lot of people aspire to or they think is really cool. Um, I think we should make goat catching a thing.
2: I think it'd be a good, it'd be a good start, start them young.
1: Yeah. It could be, it could be the training around. Yeah. So it sounds like as a kid, you were pretty active in the farm, uh, which is common for a lot of farm kids, but not all kids that grow up on farms enjoy it and want to do it but it sounds like if you were spending your spare time going out chasing goats and doing all sorts of other things that you actually really enjoyed it and this is something you wanted to do
2: yeah yeah I did I was always uh sort of happy to be out there by myself a bit and you know love love my motorbikes so I was always out on my motorbike and uh, there was a sort of section of our place that was pretty thick and scrubby so I used to sort of go out there and yeah, I'd be riding around. I'd be chasing goats or pigs or something and um, that's where we kept all our stock as well. So I'd always be out there mustering cattle and stuff and yeah, I always enjoyed it, always wanted to have a career in agriculture.
1: So you mentioned you had this fascination with aviation from an early age, but you also, the, the planes that flew over your property were in the military and also for spraying crops and today you fly helicopters but work with cattle. Like, was the plan to work with, livestock like be a mustering pilot or was it just to do any kind of flying
2: yeah the plan was to just fly for a start when i was obviously when i was a young kid i hadn't been overly exposed to the actual fact that people were mustering in the outback with helicopters and stuff my first real introduction to helicopters was we used to get helicopters out to our place to actually do like feral animal control and they'd come out and eradicate like pigs and stuff so that was my first introduction to helicopters which sparked my obsession with them but my first real introduction to aviation was uh, my work experience when I was in year 10 at school I got to I was lucky enough to have a, a good friend at school whose family owned a spray plane company and I got to go to work experience with them and actually ended up they they sent me up with an instructor in a little light aircraft and I got to Get my hands on the control of of a plane for the first time, which yeah, did nothing to stem the stem the keenness of wanting to fly. That just made me more and more determined.
1: It's lucky that you had that chance to fly. It would have been pretty, um, or it just would have sucked if you would you know spent your whole childhood being like, I want to be a pilot, I want to be a pilot, and then you know not being able to have a give it a go until you are much older and realise like, oh no, no, I don't like being in planes. Like this is not cool.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I was very lucky there. I- the school actually told them to make sure that I definitely stayed on the ground and was only allowed to use a broom in the hangar, but they, um, they knew how keen I was and obviously being good, good friends, they, they were happy to help me out. And yeah, I was lucky enough to get in the air there.
1: So what was the plan when you finished school then? Was that just to go and get your license as soon as you could?
2: Yeah, well, the plan, like I said, was always too fly. The, uh, That was about as much planning as I put into it. I hadn't really thought out a way of how I was going to achieve that. And yeah, when I finished school, my parents weren't overly impressed with uh, how I went there and my results. So uh, after my old man telling me that he reckoned I'd be flat out getting a job at McDonald's, I actually ended up running away to the Northern Territory for a year, um, which once again just reignited that whole aviation thing once I got up there and started seeing... Helicopters mustering stock and stuff, which was my first real, you know, life, like live experience to that whole thing. It's the first time I'd seen it properly. So, yeah, once again, that was reignited.
1: So, even though you grew up on a family property, going up to the territory would have been, I suppose, your first experience. I want to say, like, you know, using air quotes in the real world, you know, like, yes, you'd worked stock before, yes, you'd worked on properties, but this time, like, it's not your family. You're there to do a job. What, what was that like?
2: It was a good experience. I, I loved being up there. I loved actually being being out in the out, like right out in the outback, and being so isolated and stuff. I thought that was one of the coolest aspects of it, and it was good, a good, a very good, very fast learning curve for me to go out there and actually experience. You know, see a place with seventy thousand head of brum and cattle on it, and the absolute vastness of the country, how big it was and, you know, once again it really hit home about how much I didn't actually know about the industry so it was good to um to get out there and get introduced to it all. Do you think
1: you actually realised at the time what you didn't know or is that something you look back on now and, and think, like, or did, did you think you were kind of all that in a bag of potato chips at the time?
2: Yeah, I definitely look back on it now and I'm a little bit embarrassed about, you know, I, I can't remember it. As clear as day, but I, I can I can I can remember. You know, I, I definitely would say that I'd be embarrassed about the way I would have been. I was probably a little bit overconfident, or a lot overconfident. Probably still have that trait today, but I was definitely overconfident with my stock handling abilities. Obviously, thought I knew a lot more than I did, but that was also one of the best learning curves of the territory. It brings you back down to earth a bit, and you'll get a you'll get a punch in the head or or something pretty quick up there if you're too much of a smart-ass. So it was, um, it's a hard way to learn, but it's the best thing for you.
1: I know you also managed to end up working with a lot of friends from school when you when you went out to that first job. So how was that, again, even though at boarding school there's a certain level of independence required, um, but in a way you're still under the care of someone else and they're checking up on you and looking after you a bit, uh, and now you've got this sense of freedom with that same group of friends, um, you know. And you'd be of drinking age, and you're kind of away from all those rules. Yes, you're there to work, but also, I'm sure for a lot of people, it could kind of almost be like a, a gap year. Can sometimes kind of be like a party year.
2: Yeah. Yep. It was. Um. It was a lot of fun. Quite surprising that they let us actually do it. If I was an employer, I wouldn't get ten mates from from the same school and. And just let them free on a cattle station. So we were lucky to have that opportunity. It was a lot of fun. We, we were all sort of in it together. And, you know, sometimes it was, it was good that, you know, you knew the people you were working with, but at the same time, it would have had its disadvantages for the people that were trying to manage us. And I can imagine that, you know, if any of them were listening to this right now, they'd be shaking their head.
1: Can you explain to our listeners what the job actually was and what you were required to do?
2: Yeah. So. Every year, um, these cattle operations they've got to, they've got to harvest the, the young cattle off. Uh, They're breeders, so um, we, were, we were the crews that, that did that or attempted to do that. How well we did that, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, we'd go out in stock camps, live out in, live out in the bush, sort of next to the yards, and uh, yeah we we'd just we'd muster with aircraft, motorbikes and horses. Uh, put those cattle in the yards and then we'd go through the process of taking the, the young progeny off them, um, branding and earmarking and, you know, recording how productive the cows and stuff were being and then they'd go back out into the bush again. They'd do that sometimes twice a year, two rounds at, yeah, a lot of places. Because I was so big, they just got the one round a year in.
1: So how different was this, though, to what you were doing at home? Was it, you know, same was same trail, a different park? Like...
2: <laughs> yeah, it was um same same process you go through the same process just it was just on a way way larger scale over a way bigger area and with uh, a heap more cattle yeah but um you know there was also other things that you know we learned up there as well obviously all the pastures and stuff are different so you know there was different processes The stocking rates were all different there was they also had problems up there that we didn't have at home so you know with ticks and all that sort of stuff and buffalo fly we'd never seen any of that stuff so we're doing a lot of dipping and stuff which is something that we'd never had experience with at home a lot of the mustering was done on horseback which we did a little bit of at home I was mostly on a bike when I was at home but grew up on horses as well we did a little bit of mustering at home on the horse and the big difference there was yeah we'd go from a little three or four hour muster of a day to walking cattle out 30 kilometers on horseback and yeah, you'd barely be able to walk at the end of the day and it's a pretty steep learning curve that way.
1: I guess another thing that may have been different from what you did at home is you mentioned you used aircraft in some of the mustering. Did you use aircraft when you mustered livestock back on the family farm?
2: Uh no, nah, we were uh, it's pretty pretty open going there has there was a few instances there where they they got a helicopter in to get some cattle out of some really really thick country, but yeah, I was always away at boarding school for all those so Unfortunately for me, I got, I missed all those events, which were, I was pretty upset about. But yeah, it was the first real introduction I'd had to aircraft mustering stock.
1: So for someone who wanted to fly and you weren't really sure what kind of flying you wanted to do, is this where you decided that, you know, you wanted to fly with livestock and be a mustering pilot?
2: Yeah, that's where it really sparked my obsession with the helicopter and um, wanting to muster and, you know, just the independence and, you know, the sort of respect that you have for those fellows in the air when you're on the ground, that they're coordinating everything. And, you know, there was a certain aura about it and all the women seemed to flock to them (laughs) when they'd land and all that sort of stuff. So, it all seemed pretty appealing to a young bloke at the time.
1: Oh, that is too true, too true. What was it though? So, on this property, there was both a, a plane, so a fixed wing plane and a a helicopter used at different times what was it that made you hone in and focus on being a helicopter pilot though as opposed to with a plane
2: i'm not really sure to be honest i just i thought that they were just extremely extremely cool machines that you know you'd see them and they'd be able to get down there below the trees and really work stock and obviously you know pull up hover fly backwards sidewards whatever direction you want and yeah the way that they the way that they could bring a muster back together and had such like a presence in a muster i thought was incredibly cool we had a little bit of trouble with the plane out there and on the Barclay, if those cattle ever turned around decided that they didn't want to do it there wasn't too much the uh the plane could do because he'd sort of do a low pass and then he'd take a little bit of a while to turn around and by the time he got back there they'd be on their way back the wrong way or something so you know i just thought it was cool that the helicopter could be right there pull it back together and have such a an effect i guess and yeah he sort of One machine, you know, wheeling around 3,000 head of cattle, 4,000 head of cattle just was, blew my mind, especially as, you know, you, yeah, being just one bloke down there on a horse amongst 10 other ringers, you, you sort of not really, I mean, you're doing, you're doing a bit there, but you're not, you know, I thought that the control and, and the way that they could lead a muster was, you know, and manage men and stuff was pretty intriguing to me. Yeah.
1: They are very nimble, I suppose, compared to a plane. And hopefully I'm not, uh, offending any fixed-wing pilots because every every machine, every tool, there's a time and a place for every tool. But I think about it, uh, I suppose, similar to being on, say, a quad bike or a motorbike and a horse. So I've been on places where, you know, for the day your only option is to be on a quad bike or a motorbike. And yeah, if the cattle run back on you or do things like it takes time to to either turn that bike around or change gears into reverse on a horse, you can be so much more nimble and and re- yeah. respond a lot quicker. Yep. So I suppose that's kind of like the equivalent of the helicopter versus plane. And also, was it just that the helicopter pilots were the ones pulling chicks, and <laughs> nobody wanted to fix some pilots? <laughs> there
2: was a bit of that there. Yeah, the um, the aura of the pilot, the helicopter pilot. Yeah, the, they're their own breed. But, yeah, that that was that had a little bit to do with it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the playboy of the sky, <laughs> and I don't care who gets offended by that because it is so well known, and I'm definitely not the yeah. first to say that. So w- what happened with the rest of your season? Was the plan just to come and work on the station for a few years and then head off and get your licence?
2: Yeah, so the plan eventually, it's sort of I started to put together a bit of a plan of how I was actually going to achieve this uh, dream. So I had planned to sort of stick around you know, the place I was on and spend a bit more time there and get a lot more experience uh, on the ground. And to be an effective mustering pilot, you've got to have that experience on the ground and, you know, a good stock sense. And that's all the things that we were learning there. So the plan was to definitely go back and and try and gain more experience there. And that was brought to an abrupt halt towards the end of the season there when I I got pretty savagely towed up by a, an old grey Brahmin herd bull, which was a uh, not not my finest work, pretty embarrassing stuff. But um
1: D- don't glaze over this. What happened?
2: <laughs> we were loading a truck one day out of out of the yards, and one animal had actually hit a gate a little bit hard and put a bit of a bend in it. So I was trying to uh, chain it up and not really paying too much attention to my surroundings. And yeah, a bull came flying in from a couple of yards behind me there. And once he got in that small yard, he was feeling a little bit singled out and a bit isolated. He got a little bit toey about the whole thing and ended up um, laying into me there from from sort of behind and busted my knee, yeah, tore my MCL and ACL and dislocated my kneecap, so that was uh, me down for the count for the season, unfortunately. Yeah, I ended up going into the local the local clinic, the health clinic there, which was about 80 k's away, I think, Um and yeah, they sort of looked me over. They didn't have a lot of equipment there, and they told me that I'd just had a bruised knee and patted me on the back and told me to man up there a little bit, but uh, I was struggling to walk there. They didn't have any crutches on hand or anything, so... We ended up going back to the station, and I ended up making a bit of a bit of an old crutch out of a bit of three inch poly and a cob and co and uh, hobbling my way around there for a, for about a week or so. And once that knee started to turn a bit black and didn't didn't sort of heal up, I ended up going to the nearest town, which is about four hundred k's from where we were. And that's when they informed me that I'd done a little bit more than bruising, and I ended up going back to Sydney actually. So
1: it sounds like that was, well, I'm guessing the first thing I'm thinking of is a pretty big lesson to learn of like never be complacent and don't turn your back. But also for people that aren't familiar with working stock, that also that story is a classic uh, flight or fight response in an animal. So as a, as a prey animal, cattle, when they feel threatened, they'll either take flight, or they'll fight. And from what you just said in that story, he was in a smaller yard. It sounds like there wasn't an opportunity for him to take flight and get out of, you know, to get away enough to be comfortable. So he chose the…
2: The fight, yeah. Yeah, the other option. I guess he could have gone back out the way he came in, but that was a fight that he was definitely going to win from the start. So he sort of picked his opponent pretty well there and, yeah, taught me a thing or two about, yeah, keeping it, yeah, watching my back.
1: That must have been pretty disappointing to have to go home and not be able to finish out the season with your mates.
2: Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was um a bit disappointed and yeah, the plan was to come back, so you know, in my mind I thought I'd go home, get better and I'd be back.
1: So what what did end up happening?
2: Yeah, well I was pretty lucky once I um once I'd seen the right specialists and stuff. I didn't didn't get an operation or anything like that, so I was I was pretty right. So I did my physio, got back back going again and By that stage, they'd finished up there. So everyone had come home. Um, so I just went home back to the farm at Moree and started working, did a bit of work, trying my hand at a lot of different things. That's when I first got the offer off, um, off a cousin to go and work at Grain Corp in Moree. So he was a site manager there and he offered me a spot and he knew I was back looking for a bit of work. And I went in there and yeah, I couldn't believe the, uh, the amount of money they'd pay you there, which, Probably wasn't a lot of money, but considering what I'd been on, you know, when I was in the territory, it was a gold mine to me.
1: What was the wage in the territory?
2: Uh, when I was there, it was about 114 bucks a day. I think there was 60 or 70 bucks taken out a week for your, your board and keep. So we weren't, we weren't on the big bucks. I think once they took your rec room bill out of your paycheck, you'd, you'd finish up with about 700 bucks for the month. So
1: <laughs> I do know a fella who once didn't get paid for about, it was either two or three months straight because – so the rec room, you know, where you can buy um, cigarettes, alcohol, soft drink, whatever, chocolates. Yeah, the the bill he racked up there was more than what he made for the month.
2: Yeah, between um, the rec room and Kent's saddlery truck coming out, there's been quite a few ringers robbed of a paycheck there for a few months. It's, uh, it's easy enough to do.
1: And so what is Grain Corp as well? Sorry.
2: So Grain Corp's a bulk handling grain facility over, over on the eastern coast there. Yeah, they're a major company. They got, you know, all the bulk handling terminals along the east coast of Brisbane, Newcastle, so, ports.
1: So is it where all, once all the farmers harvest their grain, they don't keep, they keep it on the farm for a period of time and then it all goes to these locations?
2: Yeah. So they're your storages. Um, you know, a lot of people these days have on-farm storage, so they will keep their own grain. But um, before that was a thing, Grain Corp were the people that put the sheds up and, yeah, they, you'd go straight off farm straight into one of their sheds and they'd they'd look after your grain for you, yeah. So that was um, when I first started there. I was the process of testing and testing the grain quality and stuff when it would first come into the sites and unloading, unloading the trucks into the sheds. Um, once I'd done that for a bit, Like I say, it was what I thought was bloody good money for a minimal amount of work considering I wasn't getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, saddling a horse and walking 30K a day on it. So I thought it was all pretty easy work. So it didn't really faze me what I did there. And I sort of just kept my head down and did everything I'd been asked coming from the Territory, if you didn't do that, you'd cop a beating. So, yeah, I I sort of just kept my head down there a bit and poked along. And that actually ended up paying off for me in the end because I got offered a job as a pest control officer, which is a specialist that uses toxic gas to kill the insects that eat the grains and, you know, other types of chemicals to protect the grain. So yeah, the reason I stayed there was they were giving me a lot of qualifications while I was there. So they trained me up, you know, how to be a manager, how to manage people, how to manage logistics, how to obviously the fumigation side of things as well, use deadly chemicals and all that sort of stuff. So I got a lot of experience there. I think my, like I can attribute a lot of, you know, being able to, I guess, handle people or be able to integrate into different stock camps and stuff and, you know, work with people underneath me on the ground now can be attributed a bit back to GrainCorp because they put me through a lot of courses and stuff to try and teach you how to work better with people and and, you know, manage people a bit better.
1: That sounds like an incredible opportunity, especially because you were so young as well. Like a lot of people often don't get – Put through these courses until they're, you know, in their thirties or forties in middle management, and by then, you know, you kind of you you really set in your ways of of how you think it, things should work. So yeah. they kind of got you at a pretty young age and on a on a clean slate.
2: Yeah, I was very lucky there. Actually, the um the fellow that ended up offering me the job, fellow by the nickname of Chalk, he was a good fellow. He's um yeah, he for some reason he took a shine to me, so I was very lucky to get that opportunity so young. Um, Apart from all the qualifications and stuff that it gave me, it also ramped my paycheck up a fair bit, which put me on a bit of a different path for the whole flying thing because I'd gone from um, chasing the experience on that, the station experience to um, chasing the money to be actually able to pay for it, which was a fair, a fairly big help and a fairly big step in the right direction.
1: So did you, how long did you stay at Grain Corp and did you, so you didn't go back to the station?
2: Oh, I stayed there for three years. I was still back and forth between Grain Corp a little bit and, and home a lot. So I was still, you know, keeping my own a bit with stock and helping with shearing and, you know, cattle work and all that stuff at home. So I was still doing that a bit, but I, I wasn't uh, necessarily, yeah, I didn't go back to the station until uh, eventually, until I started flying. Yeah, it was my first, my first step back onto station life.
1: And so, and was that because, yeah, you were making so much more money at Grand Corp that you could afford, it, you'd be able to pay off your license or be able to afford to do it a lot sooner than if you were just trying to save while working on a station?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was going to get me where I wanted to be a lot quicker and I, I sort of saw that opportunity and seized it a bit.
1: I So, three years, that's a long time to kind of be working towards a goal. How did you, I suppose, stay on track? <laughs> and not come off track and end up just working at at Grandcore for life and you know, you're on a pretty sweet deal, you're making good money, you got responsibility, you know, fancy job title, but you you kinda had that goal and you stuck to it.
2: Yeah, no, well the thought did cross my mind there a couple of times to actually stick with it. And once again, I I, that the idea was to to save up the money and and start flying, but I didn't have a major plan of exactly how I was going to do that you know, in the sense of where I was going to go and learn and how I was going to get my theory done and all that stuff. So while I was at GrainCorp, the the plan was always there. I'm not really sure that I stuck to the script 100% of the time. I spent spent a bit of money in a few silly spots buying cars and all that stuff but maybe extended my time a little bit there.
1: So I suppose while we're talking about how you needed to go away and earn more money and save up for your licence, we probably should talk about the elephant in the room. How much does a licence
2: cost? I was pretty lucky there. I got away with it for around sixty five thousand, I think, with a with a low level endorsement and a and a forty four endorsement.
1: Sixty five thousand dollars to learn to fly a helicopter.
2: Yeah, it was the most heartbreaking thing I've ever done was paying for that licence up front. Um, transferring sixty five grand of my money to uh, well, we hadn't I hadn't been up there and seen the school even, so we weren't even sure if it wasn't a scam at the time, but um, <laughs> Yeah, that you know, that's the sixty-five grand just for the license. I actually had to move to Brisbane to do that, so I was paying rent, you know, fuel costs and everything, driving to and from the hangar there every day. And you know, by the end of it, you could—it it was a seventeen-week process for me. So by the end of it, you could call it a, a pretty even eighty, eighty grand, yeah
1: why was it so important to you to pay for it up front rather than take out a loan or I know I don't know how long this has been an option but I know some people can do it under like a hex debt these days as well yeah why did you want to just pay it up front
2: yeah I just thought if I could get it out of the way you know the first two years of my my license I'd be I'd be earning my money back paying back that that money that I'd taken out but um I wasn't I wouldn't be paying any interest. She was all, all mine to keep sort of thing. I just thought, you know, it'd be, it'd be a bit better that way. The hex debt wasn't actually a thing when I was there, but about two years after I did my license, I think they, they introduced that. But, you know, before, before I had the opportunity at Grain Corp and was given the money to do it, it would have definitely been something I would have looked at doing.
1: Tell me about learning to fly.
2: One of my mates actually tagged me in a post on Facebook of V squared helicopters in Brisbane saying that. You know, for for sixty grand, they'd give you a a license, a commercial helicopter license, into twenty two. So once I saw that, and I had my funds there, I pretty much quit my job the next week and went moved straight to Brisbane. Yeah, I was lucky enough when I was up there to be under the guidance of a bloke by the name of Ken Amos, who's a pretty well known and renowned mustering pilot.
1: Now you'd had that chance to fly, to try your hand at flying in high school. I think you said you were fifteen or sixteen. Uh, but that was in a fixed-wing aircraft. What was the first time like in a helicopter?
2: Yeah, well, I'd never actually set foot in a Robinson helicopter or any helicopter for that matter But when I got up there. So, um yeah, on our first day there, they took us out to the hangar and walking us through the hangar showing us some machines and um I made an idiot of myself by leaning forward and attempting to open the door on the 22 to have a look inside and I couldn't even work out how to get it open, so... Shows you how much experience I had there. The first time I actually flew, I remember it. I just couldn't, yeah, I did not think there would be a better feeling in the world than that. I still remember the first time I ever took off at um, Archerfield Airport in Brisbane, I, that feeling was just, I was finally there. It, it seemed like the last three or four years of my life had just vaporized and I was just, you know, I was finally, finally there.
1: So you get your license and then next, I guess, is getting a job.
2: Yeah, so bit of a funny one. Spent the last 3 years at Graincorp building my way up and getting a pretty good position there and then on the uh on the scale or on the yeah, on the scale of hierarchy, I was back at Square one really. I was a junior pilot, so I spent about 6 months ringing around, you know, chasing work. I started in Central Queensland and pretty well got palmed off from operator to operator all the way through the territory, you know, around the top of WA and Sort of down the down the west coast there until I eventually ended up getting given the number um, of Weldon Percy at Fortescue Helicopters and he I was lucky enough that he gave me my first job yeah I was ringing around and Weldon you know I'd spoken to him a couple of times I I was pretty determined I yeah I rang him a couple of times and every time he sort of said he was right and the position was filled and then obviously things changed there so he uh he called me back and the day that he called me back i actually thought he was ringing me to tell me to stop ringing him that he was gonna put a restraining order on me or something because i'd been annoying him that much but luckily for me it was uh he was offering me a pretty good opportunity yeah so once he'd actually offered me the job a bit of a funny stories he uh he he rang me back there one day we're trying to organize you know flights over to wa and everything get things sorted and um Usually pretty good with my phone there, but Mr. Missed a, Mr. Missed a call from him and he got my voicemail there and I hadn't actually thought too much about it, but I'd had a voicemail for about two years now of, um, me pretending to own a cattle stud answering the, answering the voicemail as, you know, Peter Ritter from Coonbar Santa Stud, which was completely made up. Actually came from us, a mate of mine and myself telling a couple of women that we were, uh, that we were big cattle stud owners and we changed our voicemails there in case we, missed a call from him so weldon's rung me there one day and i've missed his call and he's he saw it on the phone there he said oh and just quickly mate what's that um that santa stud that you know you've got on your voicemail there i've had a a bit to do with in the industry and i did a bit of time over in queensland and stuff and i, I just hadn't heard of him. like what's what's their story where are they from and i just completely blanked there for a second i said oh no nah, it's that they, they sold it mate yeah you know they sold it it's it's all good like don't worry about it, sort of thing. He goes, "Oh, who who used to own it?" I sort of went, "Oh, you know, mate, it doesn't really matter now, does it? They've they've got rid of it." And he just sort of went, "Oh, yeah, right, no worries." And it was about two years on once he actually knew what type of bloke I was and <laughs> knew what I got up to that he actually, I actually told him that story. He found that quite funny, but yeah, it's pretty embarrassing there for me to as a, a potential employer ringing me up and I've got a hoax voicemail pretending I'm a cattle stud owner, sort of. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Could have all gone to shit before it even started. Yeah, yep. So as a, as a junior pilot, um, you know, I'm sure there are countless learning curves and, and funny stories that go along with that. What are some of the funniest, well, I mean, and maybe at the time they weren't funny, but what are things you can look back on now and have a laugh about from when you first started out?
2: Well, I sort of still, I look back a bit now and shake my head at, at probably how, how excited I was. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously I'd worked hard to get there and I was finally there. So probably had, you know, a bit of a right to be excited, but I, I used to get a little bit carried away when I was mustering there. My first lap that I ever did at Bidjimaya down in the Gascoigne. Um, I got overly excited because I thought I'd found myself a big clean skin drought master bull in the, uh, Gascoigne river. So I was calling up on the two way telling everyone I had this big shanker of a, shanker of a bull and everyone was sort of, you know, didn't believe me. Uh, and I eventually got him out of the river to the ground crew. And yeah, he was a herd bull that had been there for about five years, just living his, living his life there. And I soon came to learn that Bijima was just definitely not a place where there was clean skin bulls. It's one of the, the best run places in the Gascoigne. Um, if not the best. So sort of made a bit of an idiot of, of myself there in the first 10 minutes.
1: I'm sure, uh, you know, yes, you, you know how to fly, but then. Even though you've got your license, it's that time being in the air and having to like, I guess, like, um, sight your eyes into what you're seeing on the ground and, and figure out what you're actually looking at. Cause that's a whole, like a whole different ball yeah. game. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's something I had to learn pretty quickly. Um, obviously we get, I went through training with, with Weldon and, you know, other experienced pilots that he had there. I wasn't just turfed out straight away. We did, we did a bit of training. So it was good for them to be able to, to be able to, um, you know, show you your sort of heights and stuff you should be looking at, but it's still, you know, it's still hard. You, you end up mustering red cattle in red country with red ant hills and stuff. There's still a few things that can throw your eye out. I remember when I was down in the goldfields in the first year I was there, they had a bit of a tourism drive that you could take, a bit of a scenic loop that you could do around, and have a look at the old history of the place and a few refurbished wool sheds and old sets of cattle yards and stuff along the way, and they had one old set of um, cattle yards made out of mulga that they'd cut up there and a bit of a history about it and you know when people were there and the dates that they were out there and what they were doing and mustering on horseback and all that sort of caper and they would put a big uh cut out like a big metal iron cut out of a, a bull in there he was like you know life-size life-size bull with big speary horns on it and everything he looked pretty high-headed and wild and i spotted him from a distance like a good distance there one day mustering and You know, I thought, geez, I've got a good set of eyes on me. You know, I'm finally starting to pick this up a bit and I've called up the other pilot I was with and I'm telling him, you know, I've got this big bull and he's down here in these old yards. I should land and swing the gate on him and I was sort of trying to be a bit gentle with him because he looked a bit high-headed from where I was sitting Um, and I I sort of working him a bit there from a distance and, yeah, he wasn't really doing what I wanted so I, I went in there a bit closer to spark him up and, yeah, it turns out I'd been working a piece of iron for about five minutes (laughs) <laughs> which goes back to getting a bit overexcited about it all.
1: Oh, at least you can look back on it and laugh. And if you can't, I sure can. So. Yeah, I think,
2: uh, yeah, the other fellow I was with, Josh Jacobs, he he still finds that pretty funny to this day, which, yeah.
1: I think that story is going to be coming up like well into your retirement years. Yeah, so yeah. So you just said that was in the gold fields and before you spoke about being in the Gascoigne. These are, so there's, I don't know, four or five, maybe six regions in WA, pastoral regions, they're, you know, not exactly neighbors. Um, I know the business you went for was based in the Pilbara. It sounds like you were covering a lot of
2: country. Yeah. Yeah. So we covered the whole of WA essentially. Um, you know, I'm obviously, yeah, I've moved on from Fortescue and I'm in the Kimberley now, but when I was at Fortescue, they, they covered from, from the bottom of the Kimberley all the way down to the Nullarbor and as far out as the territory at times. So they, uh, we got to see the, the lot of it. Yeah.
1: There must have been a ridiculous opportunity to, especially because cattle operations change so much region to region. So you would have been working with different types of cattle, different sized mobs, um, different, you know, ownership structures and, and people on the ground. And like, what a variety.
2: Yeah. It was a good, it was a really good experience. And I'm glad that, you know, like I say, there's been a fair bit of luck involved with, with me in this whole process, but I was very lucky to, um, You know, get that opportunity straight up and to be able to see, you know, everything from mustering sheep on the Nullarbor, all the, all the operations all the way through, you know, Goldfields, Gascoigne, Pilbara up to the Kimberley, all the different operations and, you know, different companies that we work for. And it didn't obviously all, all extend into just mustering. We did a lot of mining stuff as well. We did a lot of surveys, indigenous surveys and uh, native animal surveys and, Bits of bilby trapping and looking for endangered bats and heaps of different stuff. Yeah.
1: That, as if it isn't enough variety to be going to, you know, so many different cattle properties. Yeah. You, so you got to do what, what do people in, um, like, what is a mining survey and what do they need a helicopter for?
2: Um, just pretty well to cover the country mostly, but um, it's all for, for development really. So it's, it's country that they've never been in before. It's part of their lease, but they've never, you know there's no roads or anything into it mostly so we'd take take crews out in you know 44s and 66s and we'd take out um before they do any of that development they've got to make sure that they're not going to disturb you know any indigenous sacred sites or a- any endangered plants or animals so they'll go out there with uh they'd go out there with specialists and you know we'd we'd look for endangered plants endangered species or indigenous sacred sites or something just to make sure that it was all above board nothing was you know environmental impacts and stuff were all going to be kept to a minimum and obviously respecting the uh the indigenous side of things as well um so we got a lot of the surveys was with the stuff like you know new railway lines or potential mine sites or something or you know where they're even just going to put in drill pads and just test to see if they could find iron ore or gold or whatever they were looking for
1: so, is this essentially just having to take people out to a location and drop them off and then maybe come back and pick them up in a few days? Or what, what did this work involve on your end?
2: Yeah, so we'd be back and forth, um, you know, we'd be back and forth all day and we, yeah, they'd come back to the camp every night, but, you know, we'd be landing, dropping them off, going back, picking up their equipment, dropping it off to them. You know, it was, it was good, it was good, uh, work to learn to fly. You know, you land in a few tight spots and, all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of other surveying work we did as well. We did a gravity survey at Lake Disappointment where they sort of looking for seismic lines and we also surveyed like the fall of the lake to see the low spots. So when we're doing jobs like that, uh, we're doing up to 250 takeoff and landings a day to get the right data for what they were trying to map.
1: That sounds exhausting.
2: Yeah, it, it can be hard work. There you got to you got to be on the ball there a bit. Um, it was, it was a little bit easier flying because it was out on a big open salt lake. So it was just flat salt flats uh, as far as the eye could see. So it was, it was a bit easier in the way of, of taking off and landing, but you've just got to, you know, make sure that you manage your, your fatigue and all that type of stuff while you're out there and do it, you know, as safely as possible. But it was good. Like it was good fun. You know, we weren't doing it all the time. So it, it didn't really ever get too boring or anything. We got to. Yeah, it was good to see different, different operations and different types of work.
1: I bet you thought when you did your license and you got this job and you, you went out and you started mustering that you'd never be out on in these random locations. Yeah. At one stage, taking off and landing 250 times in one day. Like if that happened during a muster, something could be gone really wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know that work like that existed until I, I got there. I didn't realize that there was such a scope for helicopters, but you know, it makes a lot of sense to me now, especially given the vastness of the, the country, but also how rich it is with minerals and stuff. Everyone's, you know, you'd be surprised where you see human activity in WA, like the vastness of the Great Sandy Desert and the, and the Little Sandy Desert, like you could be out there hundreds and hundreds of miles from the nearest town or, or people and, you know, there's an old road out there and someone's been out there looking for something along the line. It's a it's pretty crazy to see.
1: You must have met some really cool people that, again, are like in a whole different world to the pastoral industry. So, you know, you're spending a lot of your time out mustering with cattle people but then you've got someone out there that, yeah, knows, I mean, I wouldn't have a clue about how these surveys work um, or, or the people that, you know, would be like a bilby specialist. And did you actually get to see a bilby?
2: Yeah, they were trapping them overnight in little little metal cages so they were. we didn't sort of muck with them too much but they got lifted you know, back to or moved at times. Yeah. As a learning curve for me again, and just, you know, the, the processes that go into, you know, you look at a mine, you just think it's a big hole in the ground, but we were sort of seeing the process from start to finish there essentially. And, you know, my first year of flying there, you'd go out and do an indigenous survey and make sure that, you know, they weren't going to disturb any of that type of stuff at sacred sites or whatever. And then, you know, you'd fly back at the same place three years later and there'd be a huge camp there and 40 dongers had been put in and sheds and you could just see the whole process, which was pretty interesting.
1: Now, you were a junior pilot and normally in in most businesses, you really have to – you don't get as many hours as the other pilots. You've got to work your way up and there can be a fair bit of, you know, dog's body work, you know, hanging around the hangar, sweeping, doing all those sorts of things. But you – we're pretty lucky that, well, with Fortescue, there's so much work there that you you did get a fair chunk of hours in that first year, but you also were based away from from the main business and the hangar. So what would you do on those days when you weren't flying? Yeah. Because I know that you weren't pushing a broom in the shed, in the hangar. (laughs) Yeah,
2: no, I was very lucky that way. Like I sort of came into it, you know, Weldon needed me to sort of get going straight away, so... You know, got straight into flying and straight, straight down to Bijima where you know they uh I was lucky enough for them to actually you know they didn't know me from a bar of soap but they gave me a home. There was sort of my second home. So I was I was lucky to be based there because I had you know a fair bit of work going on down there as well. So when I wasn't flying, I was you know working in the yards or ball running or building you know stuff in the shed or you know heaps of heaps of different things. So and it, it was good. You know, it was one of my favorite things about uh, being down there was I got the opportunity to work on the ground and got to get that perspective of, um, you know, it's a, it all looks pretty open from the air and it all looks pretty easy and you, you sort of can get a little bit frustrated at times because you think, why is it taking so long for someone to get out to me or something? But to be able to jump on the ground there and get on a motorbike and come a gutser in the scrub and work out how thick it actually is, it's a, it's a pretty good perspective for a pilot to be able to see and, you know, a bit of understanding and breeds a bit of patience. Yeah, I was lucky enough, you know, not only down the the gas coin, but did a bit of work in the Pilbara as well. Stock, just stock handling stuff, mostly yard work and, and processing and all that sort of stuff. And I was even in the gold fields, I got to run a bit of a crew and stuff down there. And, you know, it was, it was, it took away a little bit from the flying, but it was also a great experience. And like I say, it, it gives you a good perspective
1: we i have got the embarrassing stories out of you but looking back on the time that you had in in this job and you were there was it 3 3, three
2: or four years, years yeah
1: what were what are the highlights for you
2: um, you must
1: have seen and done some incredible things
2: yeah i just i mean the country's probably the biggest highlight like flying from from Newman to quite you know arid desert very red country to you know all the way over to the west coast and flying down the most blue coastline you've ever seen in your life, you know, mustering cattle off 80-mile beach and yard up a mob of cattle and then turn around and fly back a, a mile and land on the beach and catch a heap of fish for lunch and, you know, there's a pretty pretty good stuff like that. You see a lot of um, interesting stuff. That Goldfields is a bit of an interesting place. It's a, it's a pretty wild, untamed part of WA and it's got a bit of a history there and not always a good one, but it's quite... It's quite an interesting place to be. You'd, we'd be down there mustering, poking along, steady, looking for cattle, and you know, in the middle of absolutely nowhere, you'd come across a bloke walking around with a metal detector looking for gold. You know, sometimes they'd be out there in, in crews with with a couple of them, or you know, a lot of the times they were just out there by themselves. Sometimes wearing clothes, sometimes not. That uh, we come across a, no- a naked bloke out there one day looking for looking for his fortune
1: you must have been like oh i think i found a white you know like a charolet or or a gray brahman yeah. t- cow and then you look a bit no, closer and realize him,
2: you can see him from a fair way away especially the contrast of the the white backside against the uh, harsh red dirt it was he's uh, <laughs> quite easy to pick up they're a bit of a funny bunch those prospectors are, that generally if you're living out there in the scrub in the middle of WA you know living out the back of a a motor car or in an old caravan that you've somehow dragged up there you're on the run from something so there can be a few wild characters come out of the sticks up there a bit and you know it was it wasn't unusual for someone to show up to the station pretty pretty pissed off that they thought you'd been snooping on them or something And a lot of them probably didn't really understand the process of mustering and they'd just be seeing a helicopter circle around their camp or poking along steady they they're pretty paranoid that you're looking for them and yeah there's been a few times there where someone would show up and threaten to shoot you if they saw you out there again and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's pretty wild, pretty wild area.
1: Sounds like you came across some uh pretty wild characters. In amongst all that though, as we said like the diversity of people that you worked with um within like you know cattle people and you know the mining and the environment and everything else. You yeah, you have worked with a lot of people. You said working at a grain court, um surely you know set you up for that what was i'm sure you though again being your first job you learned so much who is there someone that that comes to mind that has really been a big influence in your early years
2: yeah so with the with the flying side of things like yeah i was i was very thankful and, and lucky to have hamish mctaggart like from bidgey with me alongside me in the plane we a lot of those musters down there would be two machines up so uh, he gave me a lot of guidance and You know, he's a very knowledgeable bloke. He's been doing it a long time. And yeah, I was, I was quite, um, yeah, he he saved me there a few times. And yeah, it sort of made it pretty easy for me, which gave me a good introduction into it all. Yeah. Between, uh, between him and Jody, like that. Yeah. He sort of gave me a bit of guidance in the sky and Jody gave me a bit of a home there. And like I say, a bit of a second family. So I was, I was very, very thankful for that and, and very lucky.
1: And as with anything in life, there, there comes a time to move on and try new things. And you're currently working in the Kimberley for another heli mustering business called Pearl Coast Helicopters. What was behind the decision to, to move up here and give this a go?
2: I sort of wanted to get, get out of my comfort zone there a bit and, and experience, you know, different, different country along with, you know, obviously there's a fair few uh, more cattle up in the Kimberley than, and down south, like we, they still run a good number down there, but we sort of weren't putting together mobs of 6,000 or anything like that, which, you know, we've done a bit of up here and it's just unreal country to, to see and, and it's good experience. And I've learned a lot, you know, in the year I've been up here and can be quite humbling at times. I sort of came up from down there and places like Bidjima and, you know, bigger places in the Pilbara, like Yawarragynes and Malau, like they handle their cattle pretty well and you can have a little bit of trouble there at times, but I, I came up here reasonably confident, so it was good to come up here and get a bit of a toweling from a few cattle and you know, it sort of knocked me down a peg or two to make sure I knew that I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was. But um it's been a, a pretty good learning curve for me and, and good, you know, experience. Even the country, like there's there's a lot of beautiful country up here to fly around as well, so it's also taught me how to catch a few barramundi. <laughs>
1: I love it. You're like, yeah, I came up here, you know, to get out of my comfort zone, keep pushing myself, you know, learn new, you know, keep learning and growing. But also, I really wanted to find some new fishing Go spots. Go fishing, yeah. <laughs> now, the the last thing I want to ask you about is, you know, something that you do um, in tandem with your flying is photography you've um become a little bit of a shutterbug and are well-known for you know you've got a bit of a following on instagram um everyone will put links in the show notes but it's at captured by Kerbum on instagram and i think it's the same name on on facebook is it as well yeah yeah so you you take a lot of photos or you post photos from when you're flying what um what was the start of all of it what made you want to do that
2: um Yeah, I guess it sort of just started from me wanting to be able to show people what I was seeing. I guess I I never really, never really could believe the expanses of country and and the different types of landscape and stuff I was flying over. And I sort of needed a way, I guess, to get that out there as well as, you know, a good way to show people the stock handling side of things as well. The, The first job I did at Fortescue, I got flown down to, um, Kalgoorlie. And we picked up a helicopter from there and I had to fly it back to Newman, which was a a cheeky little nine-hour ferry for me. And, you know, through the through the centre of the desert there and, you know, absolutely, yeah, I'd never seen the landscape of WA before. It was the first time I'd ever even set foot in Western Australia. So to be able to fly, you know, the first thing I flew over was the Kalgoorlie Super Pit, which is the deepest, you know, mine in the Southern Hemisphere. And, you know, from there straight through the desert and over salt lakes and all this stuff that I never knew existed, you know, there's... Wild horses and camels and donkeys and stuff running out from underneath me. And yeah, I just thought, how can I sort of show people what I'm seeing? Because to me, it just seemed like something that only a select like, handful of people would have seen, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not a common experience many people get to have. You know, say, oh, you know, 99% of photos to do with mustering or cattle stations are taken from ground level it's it's not very often we get to see things. And I think that's why drones have become such a – as big as they are because it's just – it's such a um, – it's so unique and such a novelty, I guess, to be able to see things from another perspective. Yeah, no, it's not the same. So Yeah, it's
2: pretty unique in that sense, yeah, and you're right about the drones, but I feel like there's a bit more authenticity to the old man behind the camera and it's a bit more –
1: yeah and and you can't I mean when you're out mustering you can't have a drone up there, like it's things that only you
2: yeah, and I mean it's it sort of didn't really start off as you know I didn't sort of mean for it to like blow up or anything, I guess, but it was you know just something that I thought was cool and something that I thought was different. I think a lot of a lot of people probably rolled their eyes on me and thought, oh look at this folks bloody bragging about being in a helicopter or whatever, but uh, I thought it would be you know a good way to to show people. You know, especially that don't come from that background, and I mean, I would have loved to seen a page like that, or you know, like the other pages that are getting about, like Jack's page, or you know, just to be able to see what it was like and give you a perspective. And it's the type of page that I reckon back in the day I would have looked at every day to keep myself motivated to keep working towards what I wanted. So,
1: yeah, I think there is a real opportunity there. So, yeah, there's a lot of pages, including the Central Station one out there that. Is that it is targeted to kind of showcase and promote the industry, not just to people within industry, but your, your regular lay people. But there there is so many of them, and kind of you know once you see something, once you kind of have seen it a hundred times, but it is so such a novelty to see things from the sky. I think there is there is a huge opportunity for these kind of photos to to um, build an interest with your regular lay person, even if it's not. You know, resulting in them wanting to come and work in industry and, and it doesn't have to do that, but just to have that, that interest there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I sort of, you know, hope that my photos have the effect on people. They sort of look at something and go, Oh, I didn't know that existed or I didn't know you could do that or, you know,
1: what's some of the feedback you've been getting?
2: Oh, it's mainly positive, but yeah, just, you know, people, people just being pretty keen on. Yeah. Like I say the different perspective and yeah, I got a, I got a, message off a woman the other day saying she was speechless which i feel like might be a little bit of overkill but you know it's that type of that's the the reaction that you're going for and that sort of makes it all all worth it i i didn't you know i wasn't overly interested in photography when i started it but i'm pretty you know it, i do find it interesting there now and i'm pretty keen on it so definitely like keep doing it but
1: I think that speechless comment probably is right on the mark because again like it is that novelty so for you you see this every day this is normal for you I mean you still know how special it is but you yeah. know it it would be very different to somebody that yeah has never seen it like I'm sure she probably was so I've got to ask though how do you go about this with your bosses when you know you have a you are there to be mustering cattle and Although I'm guessing you have to have a yarn with them and and get you know explain what you're doing and get permission and
0: yeah
2: yep yeah, now they're all they're all pretty happy with it as long as it's done safely which it is because the last person I want to hurt is myself so um, we all you know I always do it you know the safest way possible which sometimes means that I miss a lot of good photos but you know if you're not in the right spot or you're you're a bit busy or whatever you know obviously the first priority is mastering the cattle and making sure. You're safe, the ground crew safe and the cattle are being handled well. So, you know, as you try and take, take any mucking around out of it, um, just to make sure you're not, you know, wasting people's time, especially with helicopters being so expensive. You don't really want people thinking that you're up there just, you know, taking, just to take photos or whatever. But, um, yeah, just really make sure you pick your time and yeah, make sure that everyone's sort of happy to be a part of it all, which mostly people are, I think. And it's a good way to, you know there's it's a pretty good feeling when you take a photo and someone you know wants a print of their own station on their wall or something you know it's it's as you'd know you know it's a pretty good feeling to be able to give back to a, a little bit extra to people you know so
1: does this mean I'm getting a free print out of this or? <laughs> well,
2: it depends if I've got anything you like, I suppose. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I'm just like, as long as it's free. Nah, it's important to pay people for their work, especially creative. So that's just my <laughs> lesson for this episode. Don't expect anything for free, guys.
2: Yeah. You're strong on that. That's, a, yeah. that's what you told me when I first started yeah, it. Yeah.
1: So. Nothing for free. Now, as we, as we wrap up and that's probably good timing because the rain's just started belting down again. We are right in the middle of the wet season, even though it's been late to the party. It's, it's come and it's come with a bang.
2: Yeah. How, how much it's, rain it's have Broome. we had in
1: the last, like, two days?
2: Yeah, I think Broome had 180, 180 mil there yesterday. Yeah, by the um the depth of the water on the main street there, I think it's uh, almost a little bit too much for them in one hit. But, yeah, 180 there yesterday and 50 again today or probably more now. So.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I guess better late than never, but it'd just be nice if we could send it out on, on the country and not (laughs) so much in town. Yeah. Yeah. So earlier on in this episode, you said when you finished school, your parent, you know, I love this that your dad said you'd be flat out getting a job at McDonald's (laughs) because you, you didn't do as well in your, in your final exams as you thought. And, and what I love about your story is that, yeah, you know what? Maybe you didn't smash your final exams and you weren't ducks of the school, but you, that's not really been a anything that's held you back in life and made you any you know impeded your ability to be successful what do you think your parents think of you and your career path and what you've managed to achieve so far
2: i think they're they're pretty proud of me they um initially i think the the first thing that the first reaction to uh, what i was going to do was worry given that they know my track record on motorbikes and the like and probably susceptible to a few injuries but it's a bit of a different ball game so i think now that i've been doing it for a while and you know they can see that i've made a career out of it i think they're, they're pretty proud of me they'd be pretty keen for me to get back home they, i sort of get a fair few phone calls about when i'm coming back to jump on a header or on a tractor or give a hand with sheep and stuff they're still pretty keen to to get me back there but they are they understand it i think and they are you know i've got a bit more to see while i'm over here yet so i'll get back there eventually but yeah, I think they um, I think they they're pretty accepting of it.
1: Yeah, I I would I would think so. Not that I know them, but I'm I'm guessing like <laughs> that they'd be pretty proud. I've, I've just realised as you said, you know, you've got a bit more to see. Twenty twenty two is going to be your fifth year as a mustering pilot, and it feels like after this yarn that you have been doing this a lot longer. I'm not, you know, I know you've said you've got a lot more to learn, but man, you've managed to pack an awful lot into your first four years of flying.
2: Yeah, yeah. A I've huge pa- amount. Got to pack a lot of different experiences in there, you know. And it, Yeah, like I say, it's, you know, it's the old saying, you never stop learning. I'm still learning stuff every day about it and, you know, even I still have moments now where I go, oh, yeah, that's that's what, you know, I still think back to my instructor, you know, and I think, oh, that's what he meant, you know, and I just see it sort of now, you know, it's things like that.
1: So to wrap up, looking back on your life so far, what would you say are the major takeaway lessons?
2: a lesson I, I guess i've learned in my life and it probably it they attempted to drill it into you at school but it didn't really hit home but you know especially that first year in the territory and stuff one of the most important you know lessons i learned up there and to carry through life would just be work hard i think you know i, I sort of i kept saying to to i think mum you know how lucky i was to have got the job and how lucky i was to have been able to do what i did at grain corp and save the money and yeah she sort of turned around and said well you could call it luck but you sort of made your own luck there a bit which i think just came from you know just trying to work a bit harder and trying to strive a bit um and even coming here i think you know i had a a good run and made a lot of good friends and stuff in the in the gascoigne pilbara area and i think you know through hard work and and you know a bit of perseverance it's all it's all paid off but i think in the uh You know, a helicopter lesson I've learned that sort of transmits over into life a bit as well as I got told in my mustering endorsement, um, by a fellow called Tim Latimer that you, you never die for a steak or a handbag, which, you know, to me is just pretty simple advice, but just rings true, you know, in, in the air, obviously, but you know, always through life, you know, safety's the number one priority there. And yeah, I've learned a few good things along the way, but that's, they're the two that really stick out to me. Just work hard and and make sure that whatever you're doing you're doing it doing it safely and always you know coming home to your family or your loved ones.